Great Britain has four nuclear submarines, Vanguard class. And these subs are powerful, destructive machines, and they can launch ballistic missiles uh, with nuclear warheads uh, all over the globe. Uh, there are four of them, and each nuclear submarine has a, a nested safe inside of it. And inside that safe is a handwritten note from the prime minister. And this note is uh, sometimes referred to as the letter of last resort. One of the very first things a, an incoming prime minister does is, is write uh, instructions for the nuclear submarines. And uh, this note tells the captain what to do in the case of a nuclear attack upon Great Britain. Uh, so the assumption is uh, Great Britain's been nuked and the uh, prime minister and the second in command have been taken out. And at that point, the, uh, the, that safe is open and the captain pulls out the note. It's sealed, opens it up, and then reads what he or she is supposed to do. There are four options. The prime minister chooses from one of four options. Option number one, retaliate in kind. They nuked us, nuke them back. Option number two, stand down, do nothing. We don't want to uh, escalate the conflict. Option number three, Captain, I leave it up to your discretion to decide how you want to respond. Option number four, go take your submarine and put it underneath the uh, control of one of our allies, uh, for example, United States. And nobody knows what the prime, man, prime minister has chosen, which option they've chosen. Prime minister tells no one. That's why they're handwritten. Nobody ever types them or anything. They're sealed. They're put in that double-nested safe. And when one prime minister uh, is replaced by another, they remove that letter of last resort and they destroy it unopened so that nobody knows what it, you know, what it contained. And uh, as, of as of today, you know, this is never, you know, they've never had to open these, uh, these documents. Now, one of the purposes of the letter of last resort is to alleviate the moral dilemma that the captain and crew of these nuclear submarines have. Because it, it can be, um, it can weigh on a person knowing that they're piloting and captaining a doomsday machine and that they might be called upon to launch uh, missiles that could kill millions of people. And that can be very distressing. And so one of the purposes of the Letters of Last Resort is to allow the captain and crew of these nuclear subs to imagine that, you know what, I might, we might simply be a deterrent. When it comes right down to it and we open that safe, that letter might just say, do nothing. And that makes it easier for uh, the captain and crew of these nuclear submarines to do their duty. Sometimes, sometimes it's nice not to know. Sometimes ignorance is bliss. Sometimes not knowing is actually helpful. I think my parents were happy not to have known a lot of the dangerous things we as uh, boys did growing up because when we were adults and started sharing more of these stories, I know my dad's eyes got very big and he was like, oh, I'm glad I did not know that. That would have caused me great stress. Sometimes not knowing is a good thing, but not in matters of faith 
and ethics. And that's why I tell the story, because today we're going to talk about a willful ignorance that a lot of people uh, are in, and it is not good for them. It's not good for their soul. It's not good for their relationships. It's not good for them. We're in a series titled Flip the Script. And uh, to flip the script means you move from one life storyline to another better storyline. If you are living without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, God is not at the center of your script, and, uh, and he wants to flip it, and he wants to put himself at the center of your life script, and it's better. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. He wants you to have a better life script. And this is a nine-week series. We're talking about nine particular ways that God wants to flip the script in your life. Uh, and by the way, if you've missed earlier sermons, you can catch up online at clearwater.church. You can download the Clearwater Church app and uh, take us with you on the go. I also encourage you to get involved in a journey group. If you're not in a journey group, some of them are discussing the uh, sermon topics uh, going deeper. And so today, this, the, the flip that we're looking at is uh, God wants to move us from a place in which as it relates to faith and, ex, uh, and ethics or religion and morality, uh, many people are ma- thinking that they get to make their own truth. I'm, I make the truth. And God wants to flip it to where we move to a place where we say, I discover the truth. It's out there, and it's, it's for me to find, not to make. And we're going to see today that that's a lot, uh, lot better. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 18. John chapter 18, Pilate uh, and Jesus are talking. Pilate is the Roman prefect of Judea. Judea is part of the promised land. Uh, This is the land that God had given the Jews as their inheritance. But at this point in Israel's history, the Romans are the occupying force. And so the Jews don't have control of their own land. The Jewish leaders have decided that Jesus needs to be taken out. They want him killed. They don't like what he's teaching. Uh, It's challenging the religious status quo and the power structures of Israel. They want to get rid of this meddlesome prophet. But they don't have the power to execute him uh, because the Romans have reserved uh, execution for themselves. And so the Jewish leadership have to manufacture... Uh, some kind of reason for the Romans to let them kill or to kill on Jesus on their behalf. And, the, and so they think they've found it. Uh, they, what they say is Jesus claims to be king of the Jews. And if Jesus is king of the Jews, what does that make? Caesar, right? And so the Romans do take this accusation seriously. What? He's claiming to be king of the Jews? Well, that would be seditious uh, and uh, be fomenting some kind of a rebellion. And so Pilate takes this seriously. He's looking into this, but he's suspicious. What's their real motivation? Why would, why would the Jews be you know, selling out one of their own? They're not usually so anxious for us Romans to get involved in their affairs. And Pilate's uh, finished talking with the Jewish leadership. He withdraws into his chambers and calls Jesus to him. We pick up the story in John chapter 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? 
Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? He's hearing me, he's thinking, you know, what's really going on here? Why, why have you, why do they want to get rid of you? What have you really done to make them mad? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, I want you to understand that when Pilate asks the question, what is truth, he doesn't really expect an answer. It's not actually a question at all. This is a statement. It's an excuse. It's Pilate throwing up his hands going, what is truth? If he really wanted to, an answer to that question, if he were truly a seeker of truth, he, he would have stuck around and talked more to Jesus because Jesus has just told him, the whole reason I, I left heaven and came to earth was to bear witness to the truth. I'm I am here in order to point to the truth and say, that's the truth, that's not the truth, that's the truth. So if Pilate were truly interested in the truth, he would have talked more to Jesus. But what do we, what do we read? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews. So he kind of throws up his hands and says, what is truth? And he walks off. He's not really interested in the question. And you know what? That's... That's the case with a lot of agnostics. An agnostic is somebody who doesn't pretend to know that there's not a God. They, what they hide behind is this, uh, who knows, right? How, I don't know if there's a God. I don't know if the Bible's the Word of God. I don't know if Jesus is the Son of God. And you know what? I really don't care. That's the heart. I don't want to know. Pilate did not want to know the truth. He liked his ignorance. Why? Because that allowed him to live the life he wanted to live. What is truth? As it relates to uh, religion and, and ethics, as long as I can uh, live with an agnostic attitude and mindset, then, well, that means I can decide for myself what is true in those areas. And that was Pilate. Pilate was committed to being in charge of his own life. So he didn't want to know if there's a God. Because if there's a God, whoa, maybe that God has a will for my life. Maybe that God has told me cer certain things that I would need to do or not do or believe or not believe. And, and that would restrict my freedom, my autonomy. And that's the case with a lot of people we know where they, they don't want to know the answers to these big questions because they're afraid of the implications on their own lives. And so they say, so what is truth? They hide behind the, ex the agnostic excuse. But you know what? It's not good for them. 
They might think ignorance is bliss, but it's really not. There are three sources of human knowledge, or three ways that we access truth. Uh, the first is observation. Uh, observation. Humans have discovered any time it gets above 32 degrees. We know the earth is round. We know 2 plus 2 equals 4. We know a lot about math and science and the, and the natural world by observation, and it's awesome. And God, God uh, gave us that challenge, and he's cheering us on as we uncover truth through observation. There's a second source of uh, human knowledge, and that is reason. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. The Bible says you can look at the created world. It's been designed, and, and you can reason yourself too. There must be a designer. There's a lot of truth that we have uncovered through reason. And God blesses that too, and that's legitimate. And then there is a third source of truth, a third source of human knowledge, uh, and that's divine revelation. The fact is, we know things that we could not otherwise know because God has chosen to reveal them to us. He's just flat out told us because he knows you couldn't observe, you couldn't uncover it through observation. You couldn't have reasoned yourself to it. So I'm just going to tell you because it's important for you to know. How would we know things, for example, that God is for us and not against us or that God loves us? or that Jesus is the Son of God, or that there are angels and demons, or that the, how the future is going to wind up, that Christ will return and judge the living and the dead, and there is a heaven and there is a hell, and we have the opportunity to go be with God and spend eternity with Him, and that our sins can be t uh, forgiven. There's just a whole lot of very important truth that we could not discover apart from divine revelation. But God has care, cares enough about us that he has uh, revealed himself and the scriptures contain that revelation. What is the Bible? The Bible is the record of God revealing himself throughout history and ultimately in the person of Jesus. There are many reasons I believe that the Bible is the word of God and has been preserved for us. But probably fundamentally it comes down to this. I believe that God cares for us. And thus it makes total sense to me that God would uh, preserve his word. So that we would have an accurate record of his, uh, his heart and his purposes and his plan for us. If there is one thing to take away from this morning... It's this. If there's one thing I want you to hear, it's this. Don't cut yourself off from this source of knowledge. Don't cut yourself off from divine revelation. Because if you do, you're cutting yourself off from, uh, from one of the primary sources of truth. You're limiting yourself. And, and that, a lot of people do that. They accept uh, truth that has been uncovered through observation or through reason, and then they just ignore or reject divine revelation. But divine revelation clues us into some very important truths 
And we are at a massive disadvantage when we bury our head in the sand like an ostrich and act like it's not true. You will have a lesser life if you do that. And you will miss out on eternal life as well. Let me read you uh, a little bit from Psalms and then from Proverbs. So here's the psalmist writing about the benefit of revealed truth in his life. Oh, this is Psalm 119. I know it says 199. I'm sorry. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Law, commandment, testimonies, precepts, these are synonyms for revealed truth. And you hear the psalmist the psalmist is saying, I, I chew on revealed truth. I'm thinking about it all the time. And what has it done? It's made me wiser than my enemies. I understand more than my teachers. I understand even more than the aged. And, and why? It's because there are a lot of people uh, who discount revealed truth and they limit their, their, limit their knowledge, bottom line. And so... Uh, When I was in school, I had a lot of very brilliant professors who did not acknowledge revealed truth. And I was aware that I had a source of knowledge they they didn't have access to, and it made me wiser in many ways. It made me wiser than my teachers and, and wiser than those who are older, right? That's what he's saying. Now, over to Proverbs. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. How do we find wisdom? How do we get understanding? Well, he's talking here about revealed truth. And it blesses your life. You're better off. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She's more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed." So here's the testimony of Scripture. Revealed truth is a gift from God to us. And we are foolish to ignore it. And we are blessed to receive it and meditate on it and and practice it. I'm going to share from a, a little bit about Sarah Irving Stonebreaker and how she came to faith in Christ. By the way, she was Sarah Irving, and then she became Sarah Irving Stonebreaker. I hope my daughters marry a guy with a cool last name. <laughs> Stonebreaker. I mean, that's all. I might change my name. I mean, 
that's a pretty cool name. Well, so Sarah Irving Stonebreaker, she grew up in Australia and uh, to, she said, I had a great upbringing. My parents uh, were uh, humanists and I was an atheist growing up and completely content. She said, I didn't need uh, God to ground my identity or my values. And she was a good student, so she got uh, accepted to Cambridge in England, had a scholarship. She went and got her PhD in history from Cambridge and then uh, was hired on as a research professor in, at Oxford. So she's now a professor. She's at Oxford. She said, my attitude toward Christians was they're anti-intellectual and, uh, frankly, they're a little self-righteous. She wasn't interested. Very content as an atheist. And uh, she heard that Peter Singer, who's um, a philosopher and an, an atheist apologist, who he, so he promotes atheism, uh, was coming to Oxford. She was super excited uh, to come here, uh, listen to him. So she went to three of his, his lectures. And she said, now, during the lectures, Peter Singer talked about the difficulty uh, secular philosophy has with uh, establishing the equality of all humans. She said, the idea that all people are equal of value is not a self-evident truth. That's what Singer was saying. He said, you know, uh, secular humanism would say you should value people according to their capacity, what they contribute. But not all people are, have equal capacity. And uh, this acknowledgement of the, of the weakness of secular humanism and atheistic thought uh, really rocked uh, Sarah's brain. And she said, it left me with a strange intellectual vertigo. She said, I was committed to believing in the, human, the universal human value, but I realized that, uh, that the premise of human equality is not a self-evident truth and thus not upheld by atheism. And this uh, created sort of a, um, a cognitive dissidence that opened her to considering Christianity. A couple weeks later, she said I, she was at the library and her desk was right in front of the theology section. And uh, she went and she got a book. It happened to be a book of sermons by a guy named Paul Tillich. And she said, as I read it, I was struck at how intellectually compelling, complex, and profound the gospel was. I was attracted, but not convinced. Uh, but she was beginning to wonder, hmm, is there, uh, there are questions in my, in my mind, there are values that I hold that, that aren't being answered by my atheism. A few months later, she was uh, at a dinner at Oxford, and she was sitting beside uh, fellow professor Andrew Briggs, professor of nanotechnology, and he, he asked her during the dinner, hey, by the way, do you believe in God? She said, normally I would have always responded, no, I'm an atheist, but uh, now I didn't know what I was. I was shaken, and she said, well, I, don't, I guess maybe I'm an agnostic. And to that he responded, do you really want to sit on the fence forever? And that question bothered her uh, because she, and she eventually concluded, you know, these questions about is there a God and has God revealed himself to us? 
These are monumental questions, questions that I shouldn't just throw up my hands and, and maintain an agnostic uh, approach and attitude toward. And so that began a, a quest for what is truth that led her to faith in Jesus Christ. Turn back, if you would, to John 18. I see in this text uh, five truths, if you will, about revealed truth. The first is this. Revealed truth is relevant to everybody. I love how uh, Pilate asks, Are you really king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did somebody say it to you about me? In other words, uh, is this really a question that you have? Pilate answers, am I a Jew? In other words, Jesus, your identity is irrelevant to me. I'm a Roman. I don't care who the king of the Jews is. Who the king of the Jews is means nothing to me as a Roman. I'm just, this is a, you know, kind of a, just an exercise, right? An, an irrelevant question. But here's the, here's the fact. The fact is, the identity of Jesus was the most important question Pilate faced. The identity of Jesus was absolutely relevant to Pilate, even though he didn't realize it. Because the fact of the matter is, there's coming a day where Pilate will stand before Jesus Christ and be judged for his life. Pilate... Because he answered, uh, because he didn't cons- take that question seriously and answered it incorrectly, Pilate went on to con- to participate in the in the killing of the Son of God. Revealed truth is always relevant to you. It's relevant to everybody. Second thing I see about revealed truth uh, is that it's sometimes twisted. When Pilate. Uh, Jesus is explaining to Pilate that he's not, his kingdom's not of this world, and, and then Pilate, but, but Pilate can't hear anything except what he's listening for, and he, so he says, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. Pilate's trying to put words in Jesus' mouth, and people always, some people will always do that. They'll always take the revealed word and twist it uh, in order to make it say what they want it to say, so that it... Uh, so that it leaves them feeling okay about themselves or so that they can manipulate other people. And so some people always seek to twist God's word, uh, but we, we don't want to do that. You know, the Bible says that not many should be teachers because they're going to be held to, to a higher account. Uh, the Bible says to study to show thyself approved under God, a workman who needs not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And I know that Pastor James and I work hard to not twist the word of God. And you are encouraged to be like the Bereans, who when they heard Paul preach, they went back to the scriptures to make sure that what he said lined up with the word of God. And so you don't want to ever just follow someone blindly. Revealed truth, number three, is knowable. Jesus said, I've, uh, I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth, which means God wants you to know the truth. Uh, God left heaven and came to earth in order to point out the truth for us because he wants us to know 
the truth because it's important for us, because it will bless us and God loves us enough to have revealed it. Now, I want to caution against uh, a, a, a particular idea that's circulating out there today, and it's this. It, it says, language is so slippery that you can never really know what the Bible says. You know, even if this is the Word of God, uh, you, you can't really know for sure what it says because language is just super slippery. And uh, that's why, you know, Christians are always disagreeing with each other about what the Bible says. So who am I to actually, you know, pin it down, right? There are so many interpretations. Well, this, there are so many interpretations is another form of agnosticism. Well, if if there are lots of interpretations, then we can't know the correct interpretation, which means I can go ahead and just do whatever I want to do and believe whatever I want to believe because what is truth? It's an expression of agnosticism. But here's the reality. The reality of the Word of God is not difficult to understand. Part of being created in the image of God is He, have, he has given you the ability to use language, to communicate and to understand. Sure. There, there, uh, that there is some difficulty in interpreting. But you do not need a Bible college degree. You can open the Word of God, you can read it, and you can understand it. Yes, there are some, uh, some, some areas of theolo theology that are, the Bible's not super clear on, and, and we debate about, but nothing of significance. No major doctrine or major... Um, instruction on how to live is at all ambiguous. You can read the Bible, you can understand it, and you can live on it. Uh, all Scripture is God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, correction, instruction, and righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is knowable. God has given you the ability to understand and uh, believe and act rightly. Number four, revealed truth exposes our true allegiance. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Other translations say everyone who is on the side of truth. Because not everybody is on the side of truth. There are people who resist the truth because the Word of God ch challenges the way they live, challenges the way they want things to be, and impinges on their freedom, and they don't like it, and so they are resisting it. John chapter 3 puts it this way. John three nineteen, The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. They were committed to continuing their ungodly lifestyle. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so there are... There have always been and there will always be people who resist the truth. They don't like uh, the truth and they will, they will fight it. They're not on the side of truth. But we don't want to be those people. 
And then finally, revealed truth is found in the words of Jesus. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Uh, It is Jesus who came to bear witness to the truth. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, and not any other um, religious teacher. It's Jesus and only Jesus. And so if if you want to know the truth, then you listen to Jesus. I have uh, on screen, if you would put a, um, this is from a Gallup poll. So Gallup for 40 years has been uh, asking Americans about their attitude toward the Bible. And there have been three possible uh, answers. So what's your view of the Bible? Uh, Number one, you could say, well, I believe the Bible is the actual word of God to be taken literally. Or you could say, I believe the Bible is inspired by God, but not, to, not all of it's to be taken literally. Or you could say, I believe the Bible's just, you know, fables, history, moral precepts recorded by humans, right? It's, a, it's just a human book. Now, over the 40 years, the percentage of people who believe that the Bible is the actual word of God to be taken literally has been falling. In fact, Uh, In 2017, only 24%, less than a quarter of Americans said the Bible is the word of God to be taken literally. More people, 26%, a greater percentage, said it's just purely a human book. And I want you to notice this. The percentage of people who say, yeah, it's inspired by God, but it's not all to be taken literally, 47%. So you combine those 47 and the 26, and it's you know, more than three quarters. Now, let me drill down on this. Yeah, it's inspired by God, but it's not all to be taken literally. I want to talk, think about the practical implications of that. Who gets to decide what parts of the Bible aren't true? I do. I get to make my truth. I'm reading along in the Bible, and I say, well, I don't like that command. (laughs) What do you mean I'm supposed to wait till I get married to have sex? Mm, That's archaic. That's not true. What do you, right? That's that's the practicality of of that view of the Bible. Yeah, it's inspired by God. There's a lot here that I resonate with. That's clearly divine. And then there's stuff that challenges me, and there's stuff I don't like, and there's stuff that is unpopular today. And if I believe it or I, I, I live that way, it's going to put me on the outs with my friends. And so, nah, that's not going to be true for me. And might I suggest that our churches are filled with people who take that approach to the Word of God. That's practical agnosticism. That's, that's Pilate's heart. And you will not be blessed that way. There is one appropriate approach to God's word, and it is to submit to it 100%. This is the revealed truth of God to us. And we let it tell us how to think, what to believe, and how to live. And if we will take that humble posture 
we will be blessed. And we will find ourselves saying like the psalmist, oh, how I love your word. It has made me wiser than my enemies. I have greater understanding than those who are older than me, than my teachers. Listen, personal testimony. I decided as a young man that this is the word of God. I will believe it and obey it. And I don't, I don't regret, I've never once ever regretted that. I've regretted the times where I've disobeyed <laughs> a whole lot of times, where I've known what is right and I haven't done it because, I, because my heart is rebellious. But this is the word of God and life under its authority is blessed. And that's what God wants for you. That's what I want for you as your pastor. We have to humble ourselves. Stop picking and choosing. Stop, stop being practical agnostics and, and start being uh, humble, obedient followers of Christ. He who loves me keeps my commands. All of them, Christ says. Let's pray. Lord, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The implication, Lord, is that apart from your revealed truth, uh, we would be stumbling around in the darkness in very important matters. And so, Lord, you didn't leave us in the darkness. You have lit the way for us by your word. And, Lord, um, right now we just, uh, we're going to grapple with this truth that we've just seen. And so if you're here this morning and, and you recognize that you have been um, picking and choosing what parts of the Bible you're going to submit to, just confess that to the Lord. Just say, Lord, that's wrong. I, and forgive me for that. And I, I embrace your word as truth for me and I will submit to it. Christ's name we pray, amen.